You're listening to the EFC Podcast. Christianity Today magazine has just released its 2020 book awards and the common rule Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction by Justin Early tied for Best Christian Living Discipleship Book. I would agree. In his book, Early presents a way forward for ordinary people wanting to engage more fully with spiritual disciplines. I interviewed Justin about the practices that can ground us more fully in community and faith. I'm Karen Stiller, and I think you're going to enjoy this interview and come away with some fresh but ancient ideas for your own life. Justin, your book, The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction, uh, you unpack eight spiritual habits that can help us. Can you briefly walk us through each one and just tell us a little bit about each one? I'd be glad to. So I start with four daily habits, and then I go on to the four weekly habits. And the four daily habits are kneeling prayer three times a day. That's habit one. And that would be sort of marking your waking, your midday, and your evening with a brief moment of kneeling prayer to kind of frame the day in prayer. The second habit would be having one communal meal a day with other people. And this is sort of to push against the on-the-go, always rushed TV, dinner, fast food culture and steward us into community at the table. And then the third daily habit is spending one hour each day with your phone off. Not because I don't like phones, I love phones, but I love presence even more and think that really we can't love people outside of being present with people. So the goal of that habit is to be present. And then the final daily habit is really simple, scripture before phone. And so this is the idea that we try to move towards this God's story of love for us in the scriptures before we uh, maybe can be tempted to go look for love in our phones. So those are the four daily habits. Actually, Justin, let's let me interact with some of those daily ones first uh, before we yeah, move on to the weekly. I think to. that'll make more sense. Okay, scripture before phone. I tried it for two days, <laughs> and they were wonderful, life giving days. And then I slipped back into my old habits. Like that is that is really striking at the heart of how we live our lives. I think a lot of us. Tell me why that's so important. Uh, yeah, it is. That's kind of exactly the point to try to strike at the heart of our norms and change them. And that'll be actually be true, Karen, for all of the habits. But here's here's how this one came to be, um, which is a little tied up in my story of how the common rule came to be. But for specifically this habit, um, I um, shortly after graduating law school was working at a international law firm, and I was working at the London office. And so I would wake up every morning to about half a day's worth of email because being uh, in the States, London is about five hours ahead of us. And so what became my unintentional habit, because I wanted to do well at my new job, was just to roll over and start reading work emails. And one morning in particular, I remember uh, it, it was, I can't remember which son it was, it was either my second or third son. I woke up because my son was crying and I got up to go help him. And a couple minutes later, I'm sort of halfway in a response, a couple paragraphs in to the London office. And I realized my son is still crying. And for these minutes, I've been sitting on my bed, typing an email. And that was a bit of a wake up moment for me, because it was the moment I realized that somehow I had become more attentive to the cries of the, my office than the cries of my son. And 
like nobody would want to be that way, right? Nobody chooses to become that person. And that was a moment for me where I realized that um, my best intentions were not as formative in my life as my daily habits were. And that if I wanted to be the kind of father, you know, I wanted to be, um, I need to pay attention to habit. So on one hand, when I hear that, I think, oh, this would be good for helping me break my phone addiction. But of course, you're talking about so much more than that. When you add the phrase scripture before phone, <laughs> you're directing <laughs> us right. to yeah, spend our time yeah. with our Heavenly Father first, which is, I mean, it just seems like it would be so basic and easy, but yet it's not for a lot of us. That's right. And, and two interesting things there. I, I talk about this paradigm of living with lawyers and sometimes do seminars at law firms. And you know, there, depending on the audience, I um, suggest the habit of reading before going to your phone in the morning, of going to the written page and sort of reading or meditating. So I think there is some real just common grace wisdom to not beginning your day in an operating system that's designed to tr attract your attention and sell it to advertisers. I mean, that's, that's just sort of like a no brainer. Um, yeah. but on a deeper level, all, so all of the, if, if someone picks up the common rule and looks at the habits, they're broken up into habits of embrace and resistance. And this is actually one of the habits of resistance, but none of the habits of resistance are for restraint in and of themselves. There are things like fasting or turning your phone off for the hour a day, like I mentioned, or the scripture before phone. But the point is always resisting something so that we can embrace the true good. And here, it would be the idea that we wake up looking for love. I mean, the question we're asking in the morning is not really what do we need to do today? It's who we're going to become today. Mm. And I think when we put the phone in front of our formation, hungry eyes and heart, um, it suggests plenty of ideas for us about who we could become. And it's really different, you know, to start your day in the morning news, you know, which is more or less designed to make you angry enough to come back and check it all day and then come back and tune in the evening. You know, it's different than starting in the epistles that are designed to give us peace. Um, it's starting your day in social media is different than starting your day in the Psalms, which are designed to tell you that God has fearfully and wonderfully made you just the way you are. So I think there's a big paradigm here about where do we look for love? And if we look to scripture, then we're, we're filled. You know, we know God loves us regardless. And then we can go to all these other things, you know, social media, news, work, emails, whatever, finally not looking for love, but there, we're finally there to give love. And that just makes all the difference in our interaction with the world. And with the hour of the phone off for an hour, what should we be doing in that hour? Are you suggesting an alternative or is it just about having some peace in our lives? That, yeah, that's a great question. I actually think that um, usually, remarkably, just turning it off sets us on a path of presence, um, which is what I care about. So when I think about this habit, I'm thinking about how the biblical story is a story of presence, right? In the, in the Garden of Eden, we're made to be with God. In the fall, we you know, moved away. We hid from God. The whole Old Testament narrative is a story of God tracking down his people and manifesting his presence in tents and tabernacles. Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. Revelation is when we're fully united with God and his people. This idea that our, we were made for presence, our DNA 
longs for presence. This habit is simply to say, we can't love God and neighbor outside of presence with God and neighbor, because that's just how we're made. And these devices are useful for incredible things, but they're very, very tempting. They, they tempt us to try to be omnipresence, which always makes us, you know, be present nowhere. So removing it, I mean, I s- sometimes suggest people do it at work to be present to the creative or analytical endeavors of the office. I, I, I think it's um, maybe even better to do it in the evening when you're with your friends or your family to be fully present with them for an hour. But I actually think that once we turn them off, the whole world is waiting for us. All kinds of relationships, all kinds of meditation, all kinds of silence, all kinds of prayer, all kinds of work is actually waiting right there for you mm. when you turn your phone off. So there's all kinds of ways, good ways to do this. Yeah. And the uh, daily meal with others. And I confess my mind was going to, oh, I could shut my phone off for the hour in which I'm having the daily meal with others and like (laughs) stack, stack these things. But that may not. (laughs) I like the way way you think. No, there's something to that. We, um, We actually also have a general no phones at the table rule, which just sort of extends to everywhere. If I'm at a table, then um, the phone's not there. But you know, I, I like what you're getting at. You could definitely <laughs> do that. Well, I like that too. No phones at the table is very important. But so the daily meal with others, um, that is, a, I guess, I think obviously you're talking about family, but you also really stress the communal aspect of these disciplines. And so are you also talking about, you know, friends? I mean, you're not going to eat every day with friends probably. Well, yeah. I mean, it depends on your life stage. So for me, this okay. is sort of an easy... Um, you know, lay up to family dinner. But to a lot of my friends, it's the idea of, do you eat lunch at your desk or do you take a break with your coworkers and talk? Um, we were with one of my single friends, you know, we talk about, um, it's actually th- this kind of habit can be painful. Um, a painful reminder to single people that they would love to have a family to eat with and they don't. So sometimes it's, Sometimes it could go deep enough to, do you live with a family or friends with whom you might be able to do this? Or is there even a way just to start to move towards um, communal meals? Like one of my friends actually a couple times a week will go to the same sort of deli on the way home and eat at the counter and talk to people there and talk to waiters and waitresses. So that's kind of a, a, a survey of the variations on it. But the point, the point is to suggest that the modern tendency, I think, is is that we revolve, life revolves around our busy schedules. Life revolves around the idea that we need to do more and uh, we'll, be, we'll be better, we'll be more important if we do more, or, or even just this idea of keeping up. So hence, I think our, our diet and our relationships so, show the scars of this. I mean, we're generally, um, you know, we're an out-of-shape culture. We're a, a fast processed food culture and that same thing goes to our relationships. And so when I suggest to orient your day around a communal meal, the idea is to orient your day around the table. And like you said earlier, Karen, this is not kind of like some quaint idea of, um, I don't know, you know, an, an artisanal meal in a communal setting. This is designed to disrupt your schedule. This is designed to say, all right, how would I have to rearrange things if I did life like that because the point would be stewarding us towards that 
the formation of community that almost always begins and flourishes at the table. So I think there's a lot of, there's a lot more we could talk about just in terms of what are we getting at here? What we're getting at here is the idea of how do we become communities of love for the body of Christ and for our neighbors. And I think a lot of that begins at the table. So it's, it's about cultivating a rhythm of the table every day, as opposed to the occasional potluck. Oh, I love that. And and if you were in the stage, if you are a married person with children and you're in that stage of intense family life, maybe it's a discipline to open your table uh, to friends and neighbors um, in a way that may challenge you. Like, So it's not just about your tight family group. It's about a table of hospitality. You hit the nail on the head. That's one of my favorite things to explore with uh, some of these habits. So I mentioned earlier, half the habits lean towards embrace and half of them lean towards resistance. There's also a way of dividing the habits. Half of them lean towards the love of God, cultivating those sorts of habits, and half of them lead towards the love of neighbor. And um, I'm really, 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 really interested in how these habits actually become missional, evangelistic to the world. This to me is not a program of self-help or self-improvement so that you can finally be more calm and productive. It's an idea of asking how do we reframe our daily and weekly existence to live that sort of outward love that we're called to live in the world, to be the blessing to all the people out there who need Jesus. And I think this one strikes at the heart of it because if you have a rhythm of family dinners, or if you have a rhythm of your community group or your small group dinners going, it is not hard just to add a chair and an extra Mm. place sitting. First of all, it becomes a lot simpler just to invite somebody in. And now you have something to invite them to. I mean, I, uh, this is true this week. So at our, at my church, I, you know, I, I can't remember in the past year, the time that I've brought someone who doesn't know Jesus to the service. I honestly, unfortunately, maybe can't remember a time in the past year at our small group last week at our parish dinner, where we just have dinner together, there were five neighbors, five neighbors, you know, they, they, actually there were more neighbors who don't know Jesus than there were people who did at the table. And that to me is like, how do you do evangelism in our sort of secular, strange, skeptical moment? I think it's the table. I have heard uh, like other speakers and writers talk about hospitality being the new evangelism. And that does resonate with me when I think, well, what can I invite my neighbors to? Well, yeah, I can invite them to my table and they can see that I'm normal and not crazy. And, you know, that like that we are a family and that and we can learn from them, too. Right. It's this two way street that happens. I like that. How about the kneeling prayer then? What, what? First of all, a lot of us have not knelt since we were children, I'm guessing, and you're suggesting we literally kneel. So there's this physicality of prayer that you're driving us to, I think, three times a day. So tell me, how does that help me uh, in my posture toward God and others? Sure. The positive thrust here is that we all sort of intuitively know that we should pray more and probably would benefit and even be happier if we prayed more. The, um, the way this habit came to be, though, was actually sort of a counter liturgy to what I realized was framing my days. And that was that there were periods of my day, I probably, probably think this is true for most people, periods of my day where, where I would notice myself wishing 
things were otherwise. Um, and that's a form of prayer. It's you know, sort of a longing for wishing something would be different. And in the morning, it would often be, you know, oh, I wish I got better sleep or, I, you know, I wish I didn't have to rush to work today or I wish I had something I was excited about today. Um, midday, it was often that turn in the day where, you know, super productive just on energy and caffeine in the morning. But I hit that point in the day where I realized everything I wanted to get done today is like nowhere close. Like it's just not going to happen. And then, and then I wrestled with this, like, I'm a failure. I, I wish I had more hours in the day again, or I wish I didn't have to do that. And then, and then the evening I, you know, I often feel exposed because of how tiring the days are. You know, some of this is just my life stage of being a corporate lawyer and having four young children. But all of these moments of the day, I just realized my life was sort of framed in wishing for respite, but just sort of like wishing abstractly. And so the habit of kneeling prayer was the idea of trying to lean into those moments of neediness and actually address them to the God who can answer my and all needs. And this really changed, it really did, um, this really changed the, the tenor and the pace of my days just by simply grabbing the body's attention in the morning by kneeling. That's really all there is to the kneeling. It's a way to mark the moment for distracted minds. I think when we kneel, we are, we're, we have to feel it. I mean, our mind starts to sort of be jolted out of its distraction because we're like, oh, something's going on here, right? Um, and placing those moments and asking the Lord to be present with me today or to help me through the workday or to help me rest in his love and not what I got done today in the evening. Those just, it's a way to reframe your whole day in the love of God and the, his presence with you. And I found actually a lot of people say that this is the game changer habit for them. And it certainly has been for me. Well, that is interesting that that would be um, the thing that would, you know, disrupt their lives in a good way. Um, it's such an ancient thing to do, too. It strikes me such an Absolutely. ancient, beautiful thing to do. Yeah, nothing new here. Yeah. Okay. Take us, take us weekly. Now you have four weekly habits. Yeah. So the weekly habits, um, these are things that, you know, at some point in the week, you're sort of trying to hit on these rhythms and the, um, the two habits geared towards the love of neighbor are spending an hour of conversation with a friend every week. So that's habit one. And then the second habit is to curate our media intake to an hour limit, which is, kind of a mouthful to say, but the, the point is decide how many hours you're going to spend watching media and cut it at that. Because I think there's a lot, um, there's a lot of consequences of neighbor love ways that we're formed and ways that we do or don't spend time with other people that are actually being controlled by the ways that we engage with, um, everything from Netflix to podcasts to the news, etc. So we can dig into that one. And that the final two habit, um, these two are geared more towards the love of God are um, fasting from something once a week, whether it be alcohol, social media, food entirely fast from something to practice that rhythm of resistance and realize that those things aren't meeting your need. Only God can. And uh, the final habit is um, again, ancient, nothing new. It's the command to Sabbath. So the, the last weekly habit is the idea of, taking one day every week and setting it aside for Sabbath. And with, um, sa let's start with the last one, then Sabbath. Uh, that really is an exercise of trust I'm discovering in my life where I 
am, yeah, I'm working my um, trust muscle to say, I, I believe you, God, that I can actually get done what I need to do and still take this day for rest and reflection or pray and play as, as they say. So is that what it is for you? Is it an issue of trust? Oh, totally. This Sabbath is like so mysterious to me in that it continually builds all kinds of realizations in my life. But, but fundamentally, I think what it was at the beginning and still is now is a matter of trust. It's the idea of, can I trust that things are going to be okay if I stop? And um, that's an ongoing weekly discipline of reminding yourself that um, you, you depend literally, you know, for your next breath, for your next paycheck, uh, for your next moment of vision. It, all of these things depend on the Lord, not what you get done. But it's also a leaning into the idea that this is existentially true as well, that the real, the fundamental fact of what's been accomplished in the world is not my work week, but Jesus' work on the cross. Like only he can say it's finished. Like I, I can work around the clock seven days a week and I'll never be able to say it's finished with the sort of metaphysical finality that Jesus said it on the cross when he said, everything that needs to happen for your good and my glory is now done. And I think that's the sort of bigger current that we're leaning into when we Sabbath. I could run down all kinds of productivity benefits and just rest and health benefits, but um, they're neat. They're really great. And everybody should Sabbath for those reasons at least. But the big one is to lean into that Sabbath that is created for us because of Jesus's work on the cross for us. Oh, wow. So it is done and you are enough, Jesus. Those yes. two things. Yeah. Well, yes. speaking of trust, um, the hour long conversation with a friend. Um, right. When I when I read your book, like I think that was the uh, the one habit or discipline that I really had to ponder my way through. And I haven't uh, I haven't tried it yet in terms of the weak weakliness of it. Um, but you really are, you're not just talking about catching up or checking in. You're talking about deep kind of soul bearing, transparent conversation with someone who knows you well and knows your secrets. And you, uh, in the book, you actually use that word, like telling your secrets. Mm -hmm. So tell us why that's so important. Yes. Um, I think the typical Western life right now is inclined to become, you know, people who are busy and used to have friends. So I think there's a, there's a cultural engine that is driving us away from deep relationships with each other. And there's actually very good psychological and sociological writing about um, what, what may be an epidemic of loneliness that's yet to be diagnosed. That's the scary thing. The more beautiful thing to run to, though, is just that we are made to be communal beings. We were made in the image of the Trinity. Our the shape of our soul longs for other souls to participate with it in, in, in the like humdrum mundane stuff of life, as well as in the highest and lowest experiences. So the idea of friendship, I think is a spiritual virtue, a spiritual practice, a spiritual discipline, um, that has gone, I think, dormant in modern culture. We talk a lot about community, and I and I praise that, and I love that. We, um, I don't think we can really, really do community though, without 
the fundamental building blocks of friendship. I, I see them as sort of the strong threads that run through community or the pylons that hold up the bridge of community. And in order to do that, in order to become people whose lives are inclined towards the habit of friendship, I do think about two things, uh, time and vulnerability. And these are the kind of things that I think come up in conversations. If you just start to ask people, you know, what, what are your, how, how's life with your friends or where are you at? Sometimes you'll hear like, oh my gosh, like I've got such great friends. It's so hard to find time though now. Or you might hear something like, you know, I've got a lot of people in my life, but we just don't really get down to the, what we need to talk about. And this habit is, is not happenstance. It is specifically aimed. It's, I'm trying to paint a bullseye around those things and saying that true friendship is vulnerability plus time. If you regularly get together with people and tell your secrets, you are bearing out the very gospel to each other in an embodied sense that Jesus knows our secrets and loves us anyway. And when we have a friend who hears our failures on a weekly you know, or even monthly, but on a weekly basis and sticks around to love us anyway, that is a gospel infused practice. And that's what, that's what I'm getting at at this hour of conversation. And so during, uh, I, and I know you probably don't want to be too prescriptive, but during that hour or however long, you know, probably it could go longer. Um, are you taking turns? Are you using a set, uh, you know, question and answer format? Like how, how mm. do you stay so focused and so intentional that you don't just kind of wander off or is that okay sometimes? I, yeah, you know, actually I think that is okay. I mean, um, if people are asking, you know, sometimes you have those friends and you're like, we kind of need someone to give us a kick and start. And I definitely would suggest, you know, some questions of, um, you know, tell me the greatest thing that happened this week. Tell me the most embarrassing thing that happened this week. You know, tell me what kind of time you spent with the Lord this week, what kind of time you spent with your spouse or your kids. I think th there's value to those kind of questions for sure. But I, like Karen, for example, me, it is, um, it's much simpler, I think, than that. I, I, my friend, my best friend, Steve and I have a standing weekly coffee that's on the calendar. And, um, some days we're talking about work and, you know, maybe the, pr the promotion we're anticipating or working towards or how this project's not going well. Sometimes we're talking about our, our dark addictions and how we need help this week. Uh, sometimes we're talking about when the next time that we're going to get the family together is. I think there's a natural rhythm to it now because a natural rhythm has been created. And just to make sure that, that I don't mean that to be redundant. I'm saying once you really start to disclose your life to somebody, I think it's actually addictive in the best of ways. You actually long to continue to do that. And so once you really get into these rhythms, I think there's a natural way that your life starts to spill out and you start to tell the truth and to, to each other. And so for, for me, it's, it's not complicated and yet it's, an inc it's incredibly life-giving and protective. And how do you find that person? Like if you, you have Steve, um, what if, uh, what if someone doesn't have a Steve and they really want this, but is this, uh, like, do you need to be good friends already with this person or are we talking about an accountability partner yeah, and it could be right. someone from your church? That's a, that's such a good question. I'm glad you asked. When I was in China, um, or when I moved to DC, there, there are times where I didn't live near Steve. So Steve has been my longtime best friend, but only in the past five years, I've actually lived in the same city for the first time in a long time. 
there, there have been uh, many different friends actually who we've cultivated this kind of rhythm with. And here's what I've found to be the true in each case, starting with my dad one time in college where we had this dinner together and, um, he opened up about something to me that I never would have thought a dad would or that he would. And upon hearing his vulnerability, I was immediately moved to say, well, actually I have something to tell you. And that exchange has been happened so many times with so many different friends in my life where either I have said, Hey, I want to, I want to let you in on something. And they, um, not always, but most times say, uh, you know what? I, I kind of like to talk about this thing in my life. That's to say vulnerability is contagious, I think. And I think one way to do this is just to um, get with somebody that you trust or at least anticipate that you can trust and start to be vulnerable. Lots of times there's somebody sitting across the table from us who is dying for that kind of conversation to be initiated and waiting for us to say something like that. Yeah. And then that also moves it from vulnerability, uh, just for the sake of being vulnerable, uh, to actually, you know, helping build the body and helping comfort someone else because of what we've learned and what we've gone oh, yeah. through it. I feel like you're bringing meaning to vulnerability, which is rather than just, you know, going around telling people bad stuff about yourself. There's, there's a purpose to it that is kind of holy, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in these, uh, the other thing, big thought I have about um, your book and what you're proposing in the common rule habits of purpose for an age of distraction is this like clearly such an intentional movement, um, you know, toward like disciplines and being mindful of how we spend our days and the the minutes that make up our days and then, mm -hmm. you know, the days that make up our lives. And, and there's something about, you know, writing things down and actually having a plan. And I think also if you're a certain kind of personality, like I'm a, I'm a big list maker, I love to make lists. And, mm -hmm. you know, the first thing I write on my list is make a list. So I get to <laughs> cross it off right away and feel good. That's a good idea. Um, like that. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> so in a way you're making like a, a kind of a to-do list of spiritual things that I think would make it easier for people. It's, it is that rule of life thing again. Um, so how is this message resonating with, um, you know, say the evangelical audience that I'm presuming you're speaking to the most? Yes. In general, that's who I'm speaking to the most. And I'm finding a lot of, um, a lot of interest actually. So if, if someone picks up the book, and reads the first 10 pages, they will learn some of my secrets. And that is that I did not come to this because I'm sort of a productivity life hack kind of let's make, let's order life kind of guy. I came to this because I fell apart in anxiety and panic attacks at a very weird, at a, very, at a time in my life where I would have not thought that would happen. I thought everything was going well. And so for me, I entered into this kind of life out of necessity and I thought I was weird at the time. I just, I, I realized that my life was being fundamentally ordered by um, the tech, the devices I had bought, the bosses that I was working for, and the sort of chaotic culture that I was living in all the while, while I was professing genuinely to be a disciple of Jesus, I was being discipled by my phone, my office, and my culture. And 
for me, this was sort of a, you know, it was a time of emergency where I needed to reframe my life. But I quickly realized, Karen, that um, I was maybe extreme, but not unusual. That as I started to write, talk to friends about this, they were very interested. And then so I started like an email list of people who wanted to try some of these habits together and it just exploded. And then so then I started blogging about it and I realized we are, the, I think the modern Western church, and I say that only because that's the really, I know the Chinese church because I worked there for a while, but I really am more familiar with my home, you know, hemisphere. I think us in the modern Western church are starved for a better way to organize our days and weeks. I think once we sort of mention the idea or even listen to a podcast like this or bring up the conversation, people sort of intuitively say, yeah, doing nothing is not going well for me. Um, like to do nothing is the most exhausting thing you can do in our modern culture because to do nothing is to do so many things. And so when I suggest, you know, these habits, um, some of the gut response can be like, well, that's kind of a lot to do. I don't know if I got time for four daily and four weekly habits. And my response is, hear me out. You are already doing way too much. These, these are designed to pair you back and lean you into the love of God and neighbor, which is exactly what you were made for. This is a way of rest. This is a way of um, rhythms of renewal. This is a way to lean into the redemptive work that God is doing in and around you, like lift our eyes up and pay attention to it. I think I think this is the good life. And I think um, when people really dig into the book and the concept, they think, yeah, I actually, I need this. And I certainly do. Justin, how can people find you online and where can they find the book? You can find the book anywhere, um, you know, any, any major drone delivering, you know, web service <laughs> that might be named Amazon. You can also find right. it on, right. <laughs> you, can, you can also find it on, InterVarsity Press's website who um, published the book. Um, I would love it if people would make their way to thecommonrule.org. So the title of the book, thecommonrule.org. On the website, um, I've got some talks and videos and podcasts and interviews like this, as well as a summary of each habit. So, you know, for, for better or for worse, people can kind of, if they think about it, if they want to look more at the book just by clicking around on the website. Because my greatest hope in this is to, that people would sort of think about how, how spiritual their daily habits already are and whether they're good ones or not. So you can do that just by clicking around the website. And, and I have uh, plenty of critiques of social media, but I definitely do engage on them in some fashion. So people can also find me on Twitter. The handle is at the common rule. Justin, thank you so much. You're so welcome, Karen. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for asking. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To listen to more and to subscribe to Faith Today, Canada's Christian magazine, please visit www.theefc.ca forward slash faith today.